This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Nineteen shots in the longest rally of the match so far. Djokovic, instantaneous decision to let that ball go, and it was the right one. As the number one tennis player in the world, Novak Djokovic has certainly made a lot of wise decisions on the court. But now he's making a decision off the court that many question. Tennis has a global fan base numbering more than a billion people, and its superstars are among the best-paid athletes anywhere. As a business, though, tennis is an underachiever, bringing in less media money than cricket and leaving many elite athletes with lower rankings struggling to earn a living like Tara Moore, who's been ranked as high as number 145 in the world. Being the ranking that I am now, you're definitely not earning money. You're spending your own money. We have to coach a lot of the times outside of, of playing tournaments. So not only are we, we training every single day for five, six, seven hours, but we're also coaching on top of that just to be able to travel to these tournaments. Frustrated with the slow pace of change in elite tennis, Djokovic has formed a breakaway group of male tennis players that looks a lot like a union to change things. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter David Yaffe-Bellany. So, David, tell us what happened one afternoon in late August at the U.S. Open. So on that late August afternoon, two of the top players in men's tennis, Novak Djokovic, who's the number one player on the planet, and a kind of lesser-known Canadian player, Vasek Pospisil, convened a meeting in the mostly empty Grandstand Stadium at the U.S. Open for about 80 of their colleagues. So we're talking about 80 of the best men's tennis players in the world who were gathered there for the U.S. Open, which was about to start. And the purpose of the meeting was to gauge interest in forming essentially a union, though it's not technically a union, a group of players that could go to kind of the governing bodies of tennis, go to the people who run individual tournaments and negotiate with them for greater prize money, you know, for spacing tournaments out on the calendar in different ways, for kind of negotiating on all sorts of the issues that tennis players care about. So the idea was to kind of form this players association that would have more, more leverage in, in approaching tournaments with certain demands. Did the group get any blowback from the Association of Tennis Professionals that runs the men's tour? They did. I mean, at that meeting itself, while they were sitting in Grandstand Stadium discussing the prospect of a player association, virtually everyone there received the same text message from the ATP that was essentially a warning not to do this. You know, it said this player association won't have any real power. You never know what its long-term impact could be on the tennis ecosystem, you know, don't do this, don't form a breakaway association. And it's worth understanding that the way the ATP is structured, it's a partnership between players and tournaments. So there's a board that runs the circuit of events, the ATP board, it has three player representatives and three tournament representatives and then a chairman who can kind of break the tie if there are disputes. So the sport is run through this partnership between labor and management. And essentially what the players were proposing is, let's start our own group representing labor on its own, and that'll give us more leverage, you know. We can insist on certain things and threaten to boycott if we don't get what we want. So yes, the backlash from the ATP was immediate. There's also backlash from other players on the tour who disagreed with the strategy. So Djokovic was spearheading the breakaway group, but his two main rivals, Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal, immediately distanced themselves, said they wanted nothing to do with this new group, and that the pandemic was the wrong time to seek this kind of structural overhaul. Let's step back for a minute. Tell us where tennis fits in the world of sports as far as money and media attention. 
So one of the things that's striking about tennis is that it's one of the most popular sports on the planet. I mean, you can look at different metrics, but it's often listed as the fourth most popular sport by number of fans. You know, more than a billion people describe themselves in some polls as, as tennis fans. But in terms of the amount of money it generates, in terms of the share of the TV rights pie that it controls, it underperforms. The value of the TV rights to tennis tournaments is lower than the value of rights for sports with fewer fans like golf, hockey, cricket even. And so you end up in a situation where there's this kind of disconnect between how popular the sport is and how successful it is. We hear about the huge amounts of prize money and endorsements that tennis players get. The highest paid female athlete last year was a tennis player. But you write that players good enough to win matches at Grand Slams struggle to support themselves on their tennis earnings. So if you're a top tennis player and you're a huge commercial superstar, you know, you can land uh, sponsorship deals with Rolex or Gillette and appear in TV commercials and get paid tens of millions of dollars every year. But that's only true of a very small handful of tennis players. Once you go outside the top 50 in the world, and even more so once you go outside the top 100, you've got tennis players who are taking Postmates shifts to make extra money, who are getting part-time sales jobs to generate income because they can't survive on their tennis earnings. And there are a few reasons for that. One is that the overall size of the prize money pie that goes to players isn't as big as it could be. Tournaments could devote a greater share of their revenue to prize money, and the sport as a whole could do better monetizing itself so that the source for that prize money is larger. That's sort of a big problem for players, especially lower in the rankings, who are relying almost entirely on the money they earn from from winning matches to survive. Are the players in this new group concerned about how much, or rather how little, the lower-ranked players are making? Yeah, so in that group, you had a mixture of players who are from the lower ranks of tennis and have struggled financially throughout their careers. And it's worth remembering, these aren't random amateurs. This is like, you know, the 110th best tennis player on the entire planet. I mean, compare that to, you know, a major American sport like basketball, the 110th best player in the NBA, and it's not a perfect comparison, but the 110th best player in the NBA is making a huge salary and appearing on ESPN all the time and potentially getting endorsement deals and that sort of thing. But, you know, if you're at a similar level in tennis, you really don't get those sorts of opportunities. So, yes, in that group at the U.S. Open, you had some players from the lower ranks who were concerned about their ability to survive. You had top-level players, some of whom are sort of empathetic to those lower-ranked players, either because they are friends with people in that group or they came up through the ranks themselves and who also care about these sorts of issues. And then there are also top players who kind of have their own sets of concerns that overlap with the concerns of lower-ranked players. You might be ranked uh, 25 in the world and you know make a ton of money but feel like if the sport were better run, you could make even more money. You know, you've got a short career. You want to make sure that you monetize your playing years to the greatest extent possible and capitalize on that opportunity. And so there are top players who have that concern. There are other top players who just feel like the players should generally have more of a voice in how the sport is run. They should have uh, better input into the scheduling of tournaments. There should be, they think there should be better communication between the executives who run tennis and the players who appear at those tournaments. All those sorts of concerns came to a head during the, the pandemic as tournaments were canceled and there was kind of a breakdown in communication between the, the top brass and, and the players. Describe the fractured governance of professional tennis 
Yeah, so it's kind of an alphabet soup of uh, three-letter acronyms that it's difficult to keep straight, even if you're a fan of the sport. You've got the four Grand Slam tournaments, the U.S. Open, the Australian Open, Wimbledon, and the French Open, which are what most people who follow tennis casually are aware of. They're the biggest money-making events, the kind of star-making machinery of the sport, and they get the best TV coverage. But most of the year, the men are playing a circuit of tournaments called the ETP, the Association of Tennis Professionals. The women are playing in the WTA, the Women's Tennis Association. And then there's a third governing body called the ITF, the International Tennis Federation, which supervises its own set of tournaments. So all of these different governing bodies have their kind of own little piece of the tennis ecosystem that they control. They're often competing with each other for primacy. They're working at cross purposes. Historically, they've butted heads with each other on all kinds of issues. And this is one of the reasons that the TV value of tennis is so much lower than it, than it could be because all of these different entities are selling TV rights separately in small packages rather than consolidating it together into one extremely attractive package that you could market the way that the NFL markets sell. But every time there's been a proposal to try to unify tennis, it's gone nowhere. There's always a problem. There's always a problem. I mean, the backroom politics of tennis are incredibly nasty. I think that's something that people who follow the sport casually don't realize. You know, I quote someone in the story saying, everyone distrusts everyone else. All of these different factions have their own priorities, and they're constantly working at cross-purposes. We had one of the leaders of the Breakaway Player Association, Vasek Pospisil, sort of break down during a match in the first round in Miami and start cursing out the chairman of the ATP, on the court, on TV, over a meeting that the ATP chairman had had with the players the previous day in which they disagreed about all sorts of things and people were yelling at each other and calling each other names. That's the kind of sort of backroom squabbling that's been so pervasive in tennis, basically for its entire history since the sport went professional in the early 70s. And, you know, it continues to this day and it constantly prevents change. Even the male players and the female players are at odds. There have been other times where they proposed mergers of the male group and the female group, and the men don't want to equalize the prize money? Yes, so there are a lot of issues here. Um, I think as most casual tennis fans know, the Grand Slams are joint events. You've got uh, the men and the women playing on the same courts, you know, over the same two-week period, four times a year, and it's kind of hugely attractive to fans because you can go see Serena Williams play one day and Roger Federer play the next day. Um, That's how the Grand Slams operate. The ATP and the WTA, there are some tournaments that kind of feature both sets of players, but they're basically, they basically operate as as separate entities, um, which means that they're selling their TV rights separately, um, making all sorts of organizational decisions separately. And that causes some of, some of, some of the chaos that's held the sport back economically. So for a long time, actually since the 70s, uh, you know, various players, and historically it's been women's players who, who've driven this conversation, um, have suggested merging the tours, creating a unified governing body that runs both the men's events and the women's events for most of the year um, as a way to kind of uh, make more money, ensure that women are treated the same way men are treated, and kind of boost the sports profile overall. Um, but Historically, the men have opposed that proposal. They felt that it would help the women more than it would help them. Some men's players are kind of reluctant to, to give up their spot at the top of the hierarchy. Um, you know, I, Andy Murray, the, the, the British Wimbledon champion, went on CNN last year and said, yeah, I've talked to some guys who 
you know, even if the prize money went up from 8000 to 10000 for the men and from 5000 to 10000 for the women, they would oppose that because the prize money was equal, even though they were getting an increase. That's the kind of mindset that exists among some men's players, and it's what prevented the sport from doing that kind of merger. Now, there are also all sorts of logistical details that would have to be worked out for a merger to happen. So, you know, there are a lot of stumbling blocks, but certainly a kind of locker room machismo has been one of them. Charlie Passarell you spoke to, and he compared it to watching a soap opera because you can tune in a year after not watching, and it's all the same thing. Yes, his point was that the sorts of political debates that are paralyzing tennis now are not new. They've happened in kind of endless cycles for the whole history of the sport. And, you know, you can kind of drop in, you know, in the mid 2000s and see what's going on and come back 10 years later and, and it's no, and it's no different. And, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, but also, you know, this particular moment is different partly because of the pandemic. There's, a kind of new push for reform is taking hold among the players and even among senior executives in tennis and a feeling that the way tennis has been battered by this crisis shows that the sport needs to change in fundamental ways. And so there's new momentum to do that, but at the same time, these political divisions don't just disappear overnight. Um, and so we're at a kind of moment where it's not clear whether tennis will be able to kind of to unify and mobilize behind these sorts of changes or whether the the politics will continue to hold it back. Tell us about the new chairman of the ATP, Andrea Gadenzi, and whether he is making some hopeful moves. So Gadenzi took over the ATP at what in retrospect seems like the worst possible time, January 2020. Um, He was on the job for only a couple of months before the coronavirus upended everything. And he came into that job with a really ambitious plan. He wanted to create more unity among the tennis governing bodies to merge uh, TV rights with the WTA and with the Grand Slams uh, so the sport could be better monetized. He had a proposal for a kind of prize money formula where the amount of prize money going to players would increase as tournament revenue increases, which would help potentially eliminate the kind of cycles of the divisive debates that, that, that the sport often has about how much prize money should go to players. Um, so he had this really ambitious agenda, and then the coronavirus hits and disrupts everything. Um, and you know, in some ways, it's been it's been really bad for Gaudenzi because he hasn't been able to do what he's wanted to do, and instead he's had to basically put out fires for the last few months. But the crisis has also kind of hammered home his core point, uh, which is that tennis is too divided to be run effectively. Uh, the divisions are hurting players and holding back the sport's uh, economic growth. Um, and so certainly his hope would be that as the sport emerges from the pandemic and as the world hopefully emerges from the pandemic in the next couple of months, there'll be a kind of new appreciation for the sorts of changes that he was actually talking about before any of this happened, and that that will give him the type of political momentum he needs to get it done. Uh, but, you know, it's it's not clear whether that optimistic uh, projection will, will actually, you know, turn out to be reality. It seems like an uphill battle to get all these people on the same page. Yeah, it, it's certainly going to be a struggle. You know, there are some in tennis who think that 
this Breakaway Players Association is actually exacerbating the problem. The acronym for the players group is the PTPA, so it's just like another combination of letters to kind of juggle with all the others that you already have. But, you know, there are some who think players kind of taking a stand, raising the prospect of a boycott, which is really what this group is doing and why it's freaking out the tennis establishment. Because when players get together, the fear is that they could boycott. And that's something that nobody in the sport wants to happen. But, you know, there, there are some who think that that threat is enough to kind of jerk the ATP into action and get it to make the set types of changes that will prevent a boycott from happening. And how many players are in the breakaway group? It's not totally clear. You know, Djokovic and Pospisil have talked about getting hundreds of signatures on petitions, pledging support for the group, but the group doesn't yet really exist as kind of a structured entity. Pospisil told me that he and Djokovic and a law firm that they're working with are still putting together the bylaws for the group. They're currently thinking about hiring executives from outside of tennis to kind of run the group day to day and are planning a kind of more formal unveiling in the next few months that will kind of establish the group as like an actual entity. And at that point, they'll also continue recruiting players. It's obviously a concern that Federer and Nadal, the two most famous men's players, are distancing themselves. I mean, it's something that could hurt the group's ability to actually turn into something real that can really make change in tennis. Thanks, David. That's Bloomberg legal reporter David Yaffe Bellany. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. 